All right, welcome everybody to the Resource Roadmap Show with Therapy Insights. Um, this is a fun hour that we get to spend together talking directly to the writers of Therapy Insights about all of the new content that's been added to the library. And we just talk about different creative ways to use the resource, bring in our different clinical perspectives and talk about all the resources as well as a case study at the end. Um, if you're listening to this via podcast or watching via YouTube, you can earn CEU credit for this. Um, you can just sign up for the CEU feature of the access pass at therapyinsights.com. And then there's like a little quiz that you take, and this is episode number five. So you can search for that on our website. And just some verbal disclosures really quickly, since this is being offered for CEUs, we are all being paid by Therapy Insights to prepare and present this content. And we're talking about Therapy Insights products. So we have Ross and Troy here today. Hey, guys. Hey. And we're going to go ahead and dive in. So I'm going to share my screen. And the first piece that we have is a two-page resource all about calf muscle strains and what to expect. Um, there's some different visualizations of anatomy as well as um, some exercises. And I'll let Ross talk a little bit more about this resource. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, this resource, uh, um, it's... Uh really designed as a handout uh, for people who have had calf strains. So something that could be included um, maybe after that first visit as a way for them to help understand their injury and um, to understand uh, the treatment pathway as well. Um, so the first on the first page, there's a kind of an outline of the superficial and deep layers of the muscles of the lower leg uh, that people can look at if they're interested. Um, and then it kind of talks in, it talks about what the calf muscles are um, and uh, goes into um, especially kind of the function of the soleus and the gastroc, since those are your most commonly strained uh, calf muscles. Um, and then uh, it goes into how they're strained and typically um, any load, either chronic repetitive loading or excessive overload over a short period of time can cause a calf strain. Um, typically with soleus strains, they're more related to chronic repetitive overload. Uh, and it's common for distance runners where, you know, after maybe running a few miles, it feels almost like a heart attack in the calf or it's just cramping and uh, it stops you from continuing. Whereas with gastroc strains, it's more likely to be associated with a powerful rapid eccentric, so cutting to jump or, or something like that, where you uh, get a sharp pull in the calf. Um, though they don't always present that way, uh, that's kind of the classic way we think about uh, how calf muscles are strained. And uh, it's almost always a uh, um, overload um, exceeding the ability of the tissue to recover. Um, and it's thought to be related to sudden increases in, in uh, workload, um, especially for soleus injuries uh, related to running. Um, and then if you've already had a calf strain, you're always going to be at a higher risk of future calf strains compared to people who have not had calf strains. And so it just makes it that much more important to, uh, um, manage them, uh, uh correctly initially with uh, progressive strengthening. So, um, typically calf strains are diagnosed with, uh, clinical tests and that's usually all that's needed. Um, typically there'll be pain with loading the calf. Sometimes with the soleus strains, it can be a little bit more subtle and you might have to have someone actually run a little while before they'll actually start to experience symptoms. Um, 
And uh, you can use imaging such as ultrasound or MRI that can help localize the part of the calf that was um, injured and to grade the image injury and it can help with uh, determining whether surgical management is uh, needed as well in suspected uh, high-grade injuries. So um, typically therapeutic loading, there's a pretty good um, kind of con expert consensus statement uh, where um, people were weighing in on the best way to treat calf muscle injuries. And typically the one thing that um, pretty much everyone agreed on was that progressive strengthening is kind of the cornerstone of management for these. There's a lot less research um, available, you know, as far as randomized controlled trials, things like that, looking at um, the best ways to manage a calf injury compared to some other muscle injuries like the hamstring or adductor. Um, but a lot of the same principles uh, that work for hamstring and adductor strains theoretically should apply. And essentially that's um, strengthening, especially with a good eccentric component and uh, working the muscle into a lengthened position uh, should uh, um, be important to both uh, speed up uh, recovery and to hopefully keep it from happening again. Um, and then delaying return to running or high speed loading, at least initially, uh, might also be prudent. There is some evidence showing that running early after a calf strain is associated with a higher risk of re injury. Um, and then how long it takes to return to running can depend on the grade of injury and the severity with low grade injuries, maybe getting back within a few weeks, whereas higher grade injuries might be. Uh, months before you're, you're back to running. Um, and then also there's some evidence, uh, similarly to the hamstring, there's some evidence that if the injury is at the aponeurosis or where the calf muscle meets the Achilles, then the recovery is typically longer as well. So um, most calf injuries uh, are managed with rehab, um, but uh, if there is an actual rupture or a grade three injury, then those do need to be surgically repaired, though that's less common. Um, and then uh, it talks a little bit about experimental therapies. There's not a lot of good evidence for these, but uh, blood flow restriction therapy is an example of an experimental therapy in PT, the PT world that might be used. And then in the medical realm, there's also injections, regenerative medicine injections, such as stem cell or PRP injections. Uh, and again, there's not really a lot of data for these um, uh, treatments. So they're definitely kind of more ancillary at this point. Um, and then there's a, a chart here that can be nice for clinicians and for um, people with calf strains to kind of understand uh, uh, kind of the difference in presentation between a classic gastroc and soleus strain, which we already talked about, where you get like the shotgun bang uh, type sensation with the gastroc strain, whereas with the soleus, it's more of that, uh, you know, you've been running for a while and then all of a sudden you get a, a cramp sort of sensation in the calf. Um, Gastroc is typically easier to locate with palpation. You can kind of find the spot and push on it, whereas soleus can be harder to locate that way. It's a little deeper. And then um, the gastroc is more likely to be painful when you stretch it um, in full extension. And then the soleus is more likely to be painful when you stretch it with the knee uh, bent. And it's interesting because this is actually, I've seen some controversy, you know, in different social media posts and things where um, theoretically, the conventional thought was you should strengthen a, the gastroc with the legs straight. You should strengthen the soleus with the knee bent. And then there's um, a push from a lot of people um, saying that, you know, maybe the position doesn't matter. And essentially, if you're plantar flexing, you're working both. Um, and I would say, speaking from experience with my own soleus strain uh, that I had a while back, that uh, 
mine did not get better until I started doing heel raises with my knee bent. And so part of that might be, you know, we talk about you get the better soleus stretch with the knee bent. So even though EMG activity might be similar with the leg straight uh, versus bent, perhaps getting that stretch induced hypertrophy might still be better for the soleus with the knee bent. Um, but again, we don't really have research for that, but um, that's something else to, to consider and, and, and something to think about that, you know, how much should we strengthen knee bent for the soleus versus straight for the gastroc. But, um, but yeah, that's basically that piece. Awesome. Thank you. If you were to put a percentage on it, how accurate do you think social media is for information about stuff like this? You know, it's, I would say, uh, maybe 50% accurate because you see arguments each way, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's hard to say because, you know, you see, you see arguments each way. So who's right. It can be hard to tell. So, um, I'd say until more research is done in this case, it's, it's hard to say for sure. I know where my bias is probably, but, uh, but I'm not, that's not really backed up by research either. So. Yeah. And I meant, I imagine you just get a lot of different opinions about different case studies that people have all interacted with, with different patients and every patient's different and every yep. body is different. So you're just going to get different. Yeah. And every and strain is different, you know, even, even among yeah. soleus strains that can be located in different parts of the soleus and things. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, always more complicated than you think, I guess. All right. Well, thank you. Okay, we'll move on to the next resource. This is a one-page resource called Functional Neurological Disorder, and this was written by Troy. It's got some basic information and I think can be used as a handout for patients, family members, and is also a great reference for clinicians. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks, Megan. That's that's a great place to start with this uh, with this resource in terms of who it's for and how to how to use this one. So. We're going to talk a lot about functional neurologic disorders as we go through this show today. Um, we've got a couple different pieces in, in different capacities, um, but ultimately it needs to be, you know, uh, education and discussion on functional neurologic dis, uh, disorder in general needs to be done in a very thoughtful way. And we'll talk about ways to approach that um, in some of our later resources. But, but yeah, Megan, this one is really for meant to be a handout probably for caregivers, for uh, patients as well, as you're kind of having this, uh, this discussion about um, what the, what their diagnosis is and what it means. So, with that, functional neurologic disorder is really, it's a collection of different um, neurologic symptoms uh, that really present with um, some, how do, how do you say this, uh, with some symptoms that are not necessarily associated with um, neurologic structural problems. So, Classically, what this was called, you know, way back uh, in the day in medicine would have been like hysteria or we'll hear uh, conversion disorder, things like that, um, that are, yeah, classically like, oh, this person is is faking it, right? Um, what we're finding with functional neurologic disorder is that that's not actually the case. Um, in the bottom of this resource, it talks about uh, some really interesting studies in where they had individuals that were experiencing these you know, tremors or paralysis or something like that, that didn't have a, a cause or a reason, they put them in an fMRI, assessed um, uh, what their brain was doing when asked to 
stop their tremor or when asked to move their legs or something like that. And then compared that to individuals who were just told to go in and pretend that they couldn't move their limbs or had a tremor and their brain lit up significantly differently. So it really is thought to be more of a, um, what we call a software problem as opposed to a hardware problem. If you're a computer person, right? So this is an issue with the processing of information um, it within our body rather than actual nervous system damage. So yeah, common things are, like I said earlier, uh, um, tremors, uh, paralysis, um, immobility, seizures, dizziness, um, walking, uh, significant walking deficits with abnormal movement patterns. Um, so very frequently, these are, are um, uh, you can visually see the impairments for individuals. Um, characteristics um, uh, that are associated with this over other pathologies that look similar, that, that are more structural in nature. The severity of symptoms might fluctuate significantly. So maybe someone has a tremor only during certain situations, right? Um, or uh, in certain environments. Um, there will be episodes of spontaneous remission. So where it will go away entirely. Um, there can be, there's reports of someone having a tremor in maybe a hand. And then if someone were to place their hand over the top of that to, to stop the tremor, the tremor will actually move to a different portion of the person's body. So these are all, you know, um, kind of common characteristics associated with FND. Uh, the, the general thought is you, you want to um, try to move people away from mental energy and mental focus on um, that process and rather more towards external focus. But as you can imagine, um, this is a really, really complex um, and multifaceted uh, disease process and how you approach it as a clinician matters a whole bunch. So there's a little disclaimer, like we kind of talked about at the very beginning of this with all of this basic information. This is not something that I'm going to um, hand out to someone on their way out the door with a brief explanation of what I think is going on, right? This is something that I'm going to be sitting down across the table from them, talking through, reasoning through this with them. And in, in some ways, a sense of, um, uh, I don't want to say sales, but um, really trying to convince the individual that, hey, this is what's going on. We do have a, a diagnosis for you. And, and this is um, this is the pathology that's associated with your symptoms, which is uh, we'll move into treatment later. But that's an important piece of it. So, um, yeah, so use this one as an intervention equal with a handout, probably. And Troy, how many people would you say like in general, do most people who have this approach healthcare providers, if at all, like maybe they've just given up completely or maybe oh, yeah. they have zero trust that you're going right. to believe what they have to say? Yep. That's a huge, huge part of this. So one, FND is actually very, very, very common. Um, it's seen, it, I, I think upwards, I, I read some research that one in every six um, visits to a neurologic specialist are uh, FND, um, which was mind boggling to me. Yeah. This isn't PT specific, but this is, you know, your, your, uh, neurologist or, or neurology specialist, uh, physicians. And, um, yeah, so very common often 
not super well managed. It really takes a, um, a strong interdisciplinary team and a lot of education because there is relationship um, and yeah, relationship with your healthcare provider is uh, paramount in terms of helping these people to improve. Yeah. And a lot of them do have distrust because they've been told, oh yeah, this it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, as they're going through kind of traditional uh, medical testing as as one would. And I, yeah, I, guess I imagine that's... physical therapists are in a pretty good position to have those conversations because you can spend more time than a general practitioner or a neurologist or anyone else really having those conversations. Yep, absolutely. And, and that's why I think PTs have really... I think kind of stepped in in a way with this, um, uh, and and I think we see a lot more of it now than we maybe did 10, 15 years ago. There's a better understanding of it, um, and like you say, because of that, uh, um, probably that relationship piece that we're allowed to, um, or that that we're often able to achieve with our patients because of our plans of care. So, yeah, I was going to ask, do we know how? Um, like how direct you should be with some of these, you know, or, or, because I know that uh, I, I had one gal, I was filling in at a clinic, so I only saw her one time. I don't know how things went long-term, but it was almost like we were kind of dancing around it a little bit because we didn't want to invalidate her experience either. But, you know, she had a lot of uh, paresis with dorsiflexion sitting and, you know, she said she had a lot of ankle weakness, but then she's standing and distracted. You could have her do heel walking and things like that. And so, but it's like, do you point that out and say, Hey, look, you're, you can heel walk. You got the strength or is that like invalidating them or, is it, or do you have to just kind of choose that on a case by case basis? I guess it's something that I guess I'm not incredibly familiar with. I was wondering if there's kind of a way that you go about it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that here a little bit more too, but um, absolutely. You do want to address that with the patient. So now you need to be, you need to be thoughtful, I guess, about how you approach that conversation. Um, but the, the individuals, and this was, this was a physician, uh, this was a study um, through collections with physicians, but the importance of actually coming to the understanding and really explaining the diagnosis of FND was very, very important for people getting better. Um, and I mentioned kind of this, this thought of sales initially. Patients need to buy into this in order to be successful as well. Um, so there's a lot of other, you know, potentially social or economic kind of um, uh, factors with this as well that you that you need to be aware of and you need to be probably addressing as you're going into some of these conversations. Hmm. But yeah, no, you don't really want to, you don't really want to skirt around it. Okay. And do you, have you had situations where when people don't buy into this, it's because they want a more um, hardware related diagnosis? Um, or generally, are they just relieved to have a diagnosis? I think having a diagnosis is often very, very helpful. Um, that's what I've experienced with, with the patients that I've seen with this. Um, however, we still often when we go into treatment, we still treat it similar to how we would treat 
that in in someone that had uh, those symptoms more from a structural standpoint. So you you still are treating it very very similar, but um, yeah, often often the patients I think do want the diagnosis. They can. I guess I've had some that don't respond well also, and whether that's a factor of uh, me not building enough rapport with them initially or them not being prepared or, or ready for that. Um, but I, I think it's important that we kind of have that discussion to some degree, um, or at least lay some foundation work there for maybe the next healthcare provider down the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're gonna come back to FND. segue over to the pain catastrophizing scale. This is a two-page resource uh, written by Ross, and there's um, a QR code where you can quickly access the pain catastrophizing scale, and then the rest of the resources, um, interpretation, and how to implement the findings. So Ross, I'll let you speak more to this resource. Yeah, I decided to uh, um, make this resource because we see a lot of these uh, psychological constructs in research a lot, um, where they talk about pain catastrophizing and kinesiophobia and things. And uh, sometimes it's hard, you know, to know how do we actually uh, apply this information clinically. And so that's something I kind of wanted to to dive into a little bit with this and get into the research and, and find out how do we address catastrophizing and how important is it for our outcomes. And so it's more of a reference piece for clinicians. Um, but uh, it talks about what pain catastrophizing is. And essentially, um, it's a neg- exaggerated negative thoughts towards noxious stimuli. And um, you can see it in all kinds of painful conditions, as we'll talk about post-surgically simple problems like tennis elbow, um, all the way you know, to more complex issues like fibromyalgia. There's usually some component of catastrophizing or it can play into things somewhat. Um, And there's three main components uh, to catastrophizing. There's rumination, which is how much the person thinks about how much a stimulus hurts. Magnification, which relates to how a person may focus on and exaggerate the threat value of of their pain. Um, And so they're more likely to think that pain uh, means that they're being damaged. And then helplessness, um, which is, you know, that they don't really have the ability to they think they don't have the ability to reduce the intensity of their pain. So um, those are all kind of the components of pain catastrophizing. And so there's a section about interpreting scoring. Um, it has really good uh, reliability uh, and validity. Um, so you're you're measuring what you want to measure. And uh, there's a number of items that are scored from zero to four um, with uh, four being all the time, zero being uh, not at all. And your total score can range from zero to 52. A cutoff you see a lot in research is 30 because that's the 75th percentile uh, for catastrophization among people with chronic pain. Um, And so that's generally kind of regarded as a good cutoff for this person has um, a lot of catastrophizing or more than average catastrophizing at least. And uh, there is some uh, data, um, if this is something that you wanted to remeasure after treatment, there is some data looking at uh, minimal detectable change and the minimally important change. And interestingly, that can be different depending on whether a person is classified initially as a catastrophizer or not, um, with the minimally important change being 11 for catastrophizers. And that was um, based on uh, people with low back pain, and that was a prospective study. Um, So uh, why it's important is there's evidence going back all the way to the 90s uh, showing that 
if you don't intervene, catastrophizing typically does not change. Um, it's, but if you um, implement treatments, then it can be improved. And so uh, that's one reason to at least think about it uh, within your, your practice. Um, and then in people who have catastrophizing, they tend to have a, a higher risk of having chronic pain. And that's even for things that we consider to be pretty simple diag diagnoses like knee replacements, where there's moderate evidence that um, pain catastrophizing is an independent risk factor for chronic pain. Um, and then uh, as we talked about, influences multiple conditions. And uh, uh, there is a study um, and don't ask me how they came up with some of these numbers, how they did the analysis, but they were estimating that 16% of the dis change in disability and 22% of the change in pain in people with acute back pain was explained by catastrophizing. So it's fairly significant how much that can play into whether a person gets better or not. Um, and so it, it goes into how to change treatment when catas catastrophizing is detected. Um, and we don't really, there's still a lot of unknowns, um, and there are factors that are outside of our control. There are some twin studies showing that genetics do play into catastrophizing, um, early life environmental unpredictability is also associated with a higher risk of catastrophizing and as therapists, we can't change those things, but there are things that we can change. Um, and, uh, Pain neuroscience education is one of the simpler things, and there's actually some pretty good evidence showing that it can reduce catastrophizing. So uh, the short uh, take home from pain uh, education is that pain is not really equal to damage and that you can continue to function in the presence of pain and uh, that you can get better in the presence of pain. And so uh, there's a lot of different ways you can have that conversation with your patient, um, but um, it, there are multiple studies in multiple populations showing that uh, that can reduce catastrophizing and combining it with exercise is better than exercise alone, um, though there is evidence showing that exercise alone can also reduce catastrophizing, but including that pain neuroscience component uh, might be particularly helpful for some of these populations. Um, and uh, there was an interesting study looking at people with back pain that found that uh, Total body movements may also, it might be better to emphasize those as opposed to say isolating the multifidus or something for someone with back pain. If they if they have a lot of catastrophizing, um, getting them to kind of shift their focus away from that region and just think about you know picking something up um, or, or something like that to um, get them exercising, but uh, drawing their attention away from that, that region a little bit. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is also, there's evidence showing that that can be effective. Most physical therapists don't have training, uh, specifically in CBT. And there are some pathways available for therapists that I have not personally explored too much. Um, but, uh, considering, you know, if, if you're not having success with your pain neuroscience education and your exercise, and that's something else you could consider is that you could maybe discuss, uh, maybe seen um, or talk with the primary care doctor maybe about whether they should follow up with a psychologist if that's a, a pretty large component to their problem. Um, and then also encouraging self-management and uh, stepwise uh, approach to progression, um, where instead of when they have pain saying, oh, okay, we're going to stop that and move to something else, you know, saying, okay, well, a little pain's okay, let's keep doing this. That also might be helpful for people with pain catastrophizing. And of course, you have to consider their diagnosis with that. And then there's another trial that we'll talk about um, that was looking at mindfulness. And to me, 
mindfulness-based stress reduction kind of makes, makes sense because uh, pain catastrophizing is kind of this hyper stress state. And so the idea that maybe some um, stress reduction strategies, meditation, deep breathing, things like that could also potentially be effective. And there was one trial that was promising. There was limitations with that that we'll talk about, but um, that's something else that you can be considered for, uh, uh, for people who have this, this issue. Hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I don't live with chronic pain. I'm not a physical therapist. I don't treat chronic pain, but this all reminds me of being pregnant and preparing for one day of significant pain. And I hired a doula and like, we can learn a lot from doulas too, about um, pain management, all of the theories around that from them. And I remember when I was in labor and it was probably one of the most intense parts of it. She looked at me and she was like, you're safe. Like nothing's going to happen to your body. You're safe. And like, I had no idea (laughs) how meaningful that would be to me in the moment and how much I would magnify the pain to feel like my body was going to explode or, you know, there was some damage that was going to happen. And then that fear and that anxiety just kind of snowballs and it gets worse and worse but we have strategies in place it's really powerful so it's important work yeah absolutely and that's something that uh, um, was in my wife's uh, some of her classes pregnancy classes as well it seems like they incorporated a lot of similar concepts you know as far as you know the importance of breathing and de-escalating things like that absolutely I think it applies to that as well yeah awesome thank you Ross, I got a quick question for you. What do you you say to your patients in terms of, right, if you, if, if you're working on loading someone in in some, some regards that, that maybe has some signs of, of catastrophizing, what do you, what do you tell them in terms of okay pain and not okay pain, I guess? Um, Or how do you find that, that balance? I think it depends a lot on the diagnosis. So if someone's just had, you know, a rotator cuff repair you don't really want to be grinding through pain because you don't, you know, you don't want to re-tear that. And so there are times where you need to respect the tissue a lot more and uh, other times where it's less important. So someone with knee OA, as an example, we know that they're going to have some pain when we load them. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, in that case, it's not necessarily that something's being damaged further. And so I think that you really have to look at it on a case by case basis, but um, one thing I tell people a lot is, oh, a little pain while you're doing it is fine. So long as it kind of settles back down once we stop, you know, for a lot of people focusing on the irritability can be important and you don't have to get into a huge talk about, you know, the descending inhibitory pathways in the brain or something. You don't have to go into a lot of that. You can just say, oh, well, some pain, you know, sometimes your body talks to you, but so long as it goes, goes away and, and kind of and there's, it's to be expected that there'll be a little pain when we, when we work this and, and it's not, doesn't mean that you're damaging anything. And I think that, um, reinforcing that kind of language, especially with a lot of your chronic pain populations is, is important for sure. Yeah. It reminds me too, of some of this F and D stuff that we were talking about as well, in terms of, I mean, your confidence in that explanation, I think makes a huge, huge difference, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. It's like if, if, uh, if someone has pain and you go, okay, well, we're, we're let's go do something else. Uh, uh, you know, and if you, if you have that energy, then they'll interpret it as, oh gosh, <laughs> you know, this is, this is really bad that this hurt like that, you know? And so you have to, you have to be careful with that for sure. Yeah. Great. Hmm. Interesting. 
Okay, and this ties into an article snapshot that you wrote, uh, Ross. So can you tell us about this one? Yeah, so this was that mindfulness study that I was uh, talking about a little bit. And so they, um, it was a randomized controlled trial and they uh, split people into two groups. One group uh, did 30 hours of mindfulness-based stress reduction training, which included um, some other interventions as well. So like spinal flexibility, yoga type exercises and uh, some education about nutrition and sleep. And then they compared that to usual care. And I think that's the main weakness of this study is I think that almost anything will, uh, will perform better compared to usual care because usual care is basically just telling the person, okay, we'll continue with your life. So um, that being said, uh, they did find uh, improvement in catastrophization and in uh, blood markers of stress and inflammation with this approach, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting. Um, and uh, uh, essentially, uh, it just goes to show that, you know, this is at least a treatment option for people who catastrophize. Um, and then uh, one thing that I, I wish I, we could have seen is if they compared it to just regular aerobic exercise. We know aerobic exercise has systemic anti-inflammatory effects. So it would be nice to see just compared to cycling or something, you know, something a little bit more active and then also attention placebo. So the group that uh, did this had 30 hours of one-on-one -on -one time, whereas the other group had basically none. And so we know that that can influence outcomes as well. And so, uh, like I said, there are some weaknesses to it. Um, uh, and then something else to consider is they did talk about diet and sleep. And we know that diet can inf influence inflammation. Sleep can influence basically everything from your mood to, to everything else. Um, but uh, I, I think it just, uh, I thought it was an interesting study because it, it just demonstrates that we can at least use this as an option and making it a big difference with people who, who catastrophize. Um, and something else to consider is that it was uh, mostly people with moderate or better range of motion limitations and without severe functional limitations. And so you have to take, be careful when you generalize results because a lot of times in PT, the people we, by the time they see us, they're, they've got severe functional limitations and they're doing a little bit worse. So you have to be, keep that in mind as well. Ross, did you say, and I just missed it, or like for the mindfulness-based stress reduction, was there a specific protocol or a specific way that they were introducing mindfulness that you can talk about? There was a specific protocol. Um, and if you go to the study, there is a like an auxiliary file that kind of goes through step-by-step -step what they did. And I think that each session used a combination of things. And so they went into mindfulness, they went into deep breathing. And so they spent time working on breathing and relaxation. They did uh, guided meditation, I believe. And then they did uh, exercises. And so some of that was spinal stability uh, based stuff. And then a lot of it was kind of, uh, it looked like yoga to me, you know, like downward dog and just stretching and um, exploring different movements, things like that. Um, and so I guess that they kind of, tackled a lot of things at once when they, with the protocol. Okay, got it, thank you. Okay, we're gonna go back into um, functional neurological disorder with Troy. And this is a, a separate piece that's more of a guide for clinicians um, as far as treatment for FND. So Troy, I'll let you talk more about this one. 
Yeah, great. Yeah, this is a resource that I'm going to pull out when I see um, that patient that comes in but on my schedule that says, hey, they're coming in with a diagnosis of FND, um, or maybe I've seen them once and I'm starting to think, uh, okay, what's is is this not matching up quite uh, quite right with their original diagnosis? I'm going to pull out this resource and, and use this as a way to kind of prepare for um, ideally my initial um initial appointment and initial evaluation for someone with FND. So it talks specifically about how important your subjective history taking is. This, this is a huge, huge part of, uh, of your treatment and of your assessment as well, but um, uh, with, with your patients in this situation. So uh, your goals with your subjective um, report are to really encourage open communication and establish a good rapport with your patient. So whatever you need to do to really work towards that type of environment in that initial session, I think is important. You're going to help the patient to really identify triggers. You're going to um, offer a lot of open communication where they can um hopefully ideally begin to trust you through your kind of active listening um, type strategies with this. Um, as we're going through this, I might go back to that other resource and pull that out and say, hey, do any of these types of symptoms um, help to explain uh, what you're experiencing, right? So I'm going to try in that subjective history taking to have them begin to identify with FND if, if we're pretty confident that that's what's going on. Um, I listed a variety of different questions that I think will help um, guide your subjective. So I, I said things like, they come in and I say, hey, tell me your story, right? So it's it's much more open. It's much more broad because I'm looking for things that aren't necessarily just, you know, pathoanatomical type of things, but rather I'm going to be treating these patients through a through like a biopsychosocial model. So I want to get a lot of information about what they're experiencing, but also when did this start? What else was going on when you had your symptoms uh, first begin? Oh, it was a stressful time. My my mother had just died, and you know my spouse was diagnosed with cancer, or you know whatever it may be. All of these different things. I'm going to want to gather some of that. So really digging into some of the psychosocial parts of uh, the disease process as well. Um, I might ask what environments or situations cause your, your problems to get worse, which ones cause them to improve, um, what's your social support like, um, do you feel like you've been listened to by other healthcare professionals? Those are the questions that I'm going to be working through as I'm kind of navigating this. Now, in that other resource and in uh, some in our article review, we'll talk about different tests and measures that you can do to assess this. There's what's called a Hoover sign, which is um, the uh, more or less, like Ross had mentioned earlier, this a way to see if this uh motor strength problem is is um uh is is normal in the sense that it's always weak or are there uh things that you can do to provide external focus where strength improves um so there are ways to kind of narrow in on this uh, more specifically um so that you don't have to um yeah, kind of give this diagnosis when you're not sure, right? But often if they're coming in with this case, guess what? They've already had an MRI or a CT and, you know, all of these other healthcare providers that say, hey, your brain's looking great or, you know, whatever it is, all this is looking fine. Um, so, so these, 
yeah, that's really when you're you're going to come to this conclusion. Um, the other important thing in, in your initial evaluation is really working towards a, an appropriate plan of care development. So you want to set out clear expectations um, with your patient. So I'm going to have the discussion of I expect you to get better. Um, I'm planning on you improving. Uh, I've treated a, a wide variety of individuals um, with symptoms similar to yours, right? So you're going to want to establish yourself as a professional um, and as an expert in, in that uh, environment and really setting setting those goals based on uh, on things that they want to, to accomplish um, and a timeline, almost like a contract um, with your patient can be helpful. So being probably a little bit more explicit with my goals and my plan of care than I maybe would be with my normal patients. A lot of that often is kind of happening behind the scenes as we're working towards towards some of those goals. I'm going to be much more upfront and forward with, uh, with my patients with F&D. Um, any opportunity that you have to include um, a team uh, is really important. So getting other medical professionals on board and kind of talking the same language um, as you and continuing to kind of reinforce this um, with the patient is one of the most um, beneficial things. Uh, I know I know Mayo Clinic um, has uh, an F and D clinic where they um, where they focus on these types of things and a big interdisciplinary approach that that has had pretty good success in terms of uh, in terms of people getting better. But right, they're going to have to travel to Rochester or uh, whatnot to uh, um, to experience some of that. Um, uh, some research suggested that um, you're aiming for about six to 12 sessions with your patient. Um, one time a week is often appropriate. You don't necessarily need to meet in um, quite as much as you would with, um, with someone um, with a different pathology. Um, treatment recommendations. Uh, you're going to continue to create this expectation of improvement with your patient. You're going to limit your hands-on um, treatment. Uh, focus on the function and minimize reinforcement of any sort of abnormal movement patterns. Um, some of the other kind of effective ways to work on this is to really drive an external focus on, on a task. So instead of, um, you know, for, for example, I will use, you know, if I'm working on um, maybe balance or something, uh, I'll put them in an unstable environment you know, if they're, if I'm doing the the standard test with them, uh, they might fail very, very quickly or need um, like contact guard assist or something like that to, to avoid falling. Now, as I'm training and, uh, and as I'm treating them, I'm going to give them a task while they're in this unstable environment um, uh, to kind of more or less distract from the physical activity. So, um, I won't use uh, use names of any products, but often I have some lights that light up that you can hit, um, you know, that will uh, change colors and things like that. So I'll ask, OK, I want you to hit the green light that pops up. And so they're outreaching outside of their base of support and, and um, still performing on this uh, on this wedge. And it, it's awesome. You get them off of this and you're like, wow, can you believe what you just did? You just crushed this. You know, you made so much progress. Um, you were able to stand on this the whole time. And guess what? this was even harder than when we tested this last week or three weeks ago or whatever it was. Um, so really driving that external focus can be, can be helpful. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, so a good one, like I said, for you to be back in your office reading, kind of prepping um, to get ready, pulling out that other sheet that we had before to say, hey, do you identify with any of these uh, with with these symptoms that are on this FND sheet that says, hey, look here, people that have these types of symptoms have FND. So um, yeah, this one's for you. Excellent. And this ties in with the article snapshot that you wrote. And is FND, is that interchangeable with functional motor disorders? Those are the same thing? No, but close. And, and I could have talked about this. In the first resource, it does talk about this a little bit. So FND is really a big umbrella term for, I think, maybe like six different um uh, pathologies that are that are um, similar. So there's a functional movement disorder. That's the one where, um, yeah, they maybe have a, a very ataxic gait for no reason or something like that. Um, persistent post-concussive syndrome is another thing. Uh, so ongoing uh, concussive symptoms have, have been kind of uh, put under an FND, uh, functional cognitive disorders, uh, what's called 3PD or persistent uh, postural perceptual dizziness. That's something that's um, kind of new and upcoming in the more vestibular um, type of realm. So if you're a PT that sees a lot of folks with vestibular deficit, this is something that you would want to know about. Um, complex regional pain syndrome um, and then functional seizures. So those are all uh, underneath the umbrella of, of, of FND, most of the examples that I've given you today are really probably more functional motor or functional movement disorders or, or motor disorders. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that leads us into this, uh, um, yeah, this article review, which is a consensus that was put together is based on I, not actually that many studies. I want to say there was only three maybe peer-reviewed studies that um, that kind of put these recommendations together for individuals um, treating FND. It was directed more towards physicians than it was uh, physical therapists, but I do feel like there was um, you know, there's a lot of principles that we can take here and, and um, translate uh, into PT practice as well. So um, it gives an overview of what FND is um, and then really breaks down the things that you should and shouldn't do. We've talked about a lot of this in that other resource, uh, but this gives you a little bit more um, specific. So the, the main thing is developing a trusting and open um, communication with your patient um, and it and assuring them that their symptoms are real and that progress can be made. So we we talked about this like enhanced expectations is what they talk about um, in the literature. You really want to uh, provide enhanced expectations. So you say, yeah, you will get better. Yes, I've done this before. Yes, I've seen this work. Um, those types of things to really um, set the stage and the tone for progress and for improvement. Um, they also recommended that you develop strategies to focus more on tasks um, that require external focus rather than on the movement disorder. So um, we've seen this in other literature reviews that we've done as well with other pathologies, but uh, really not necessarily focusing on the finer details, right, of, of, uh, of the task can be helpful. So uh, if someone has an ataxic gait, I'm not going to just get them to focus exclusively on putting their foot exactly where I want it. Instead, I'm going to take their focus elsewhere and maybe have them 
you know, walking and um, looking, you know, scanning their environment or counting or something along those lines where we're not actually as much focused on the on the movement pattern and, and inhibiting that or, or something in some way. Um, the other piece of uh, of advice that they said is you want to develop confidence and high self-efficacy for your patient. Um, so, right, there's a lot of kind of counseling that goes along with this um, as a physical therapist. Um, and you're going to create that environment where recovery is expected. The article also mentions that it's really important that you not use terms like conversion disorder, right? We talked about that earlier. They have some real negative connotations. Um, so that is, that's uh, kind of older language and not only older language, but right. I mentioned that FR, fMRI study earlier um, that things are, things are happening in the brain. It's not that someone is, is faking it. These symptoms are real. So the expectation um, that you know that and that they're experiencing that is, is important. Um, you're going to limit the manual therapy. Um, yeah. So those, those types of things are, are, are more detailed in the, in the article review, but a lot of the article um, kind of guided the resource that we just went over before this. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move on to the last resource we're going to talk about today. This is a one-page resource titled Evidence-Based Practice to Improving Walking After Stroke, Spinal Cord Injury, or Brain Injury, and it's a fantastic quick reference chart uh, that I'll let Ross talk more about. In fact, I will talk about it. Oh, sorry. Uh, Whereas, <laughs> Ross was like, really? I'm going to talk about this? Are you sure? Let <laughs> me write it. Okay. Um, well, you know what I am confident of? Ross would be able to talk about this. This resource <laughs> is its also really well laid out so that you can understand it super, super easy. So even though Ross didn't understand this, he could probably take the lead. It's a, it's a chart that really outlines the specifics of um, the clinical practice guideline that came out um, in 2020 regarding walking and uh, for individuals with neurologic disorder. So there's... Uh, I think there's 10 action statements. Uh, yeah, 10 action statements um, that uh, the CPG put out that said either do this or don't do this. And then what we did is uh, compiled them into high quality, um, limited evidence or no evidence on these action statements for each condition. So it talks about things that you should be doing and things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and at least talk about a few of them. So um, most of the evidence that is um, uh, that was available in this CPG is really directed towards individuals with um, CVA. So for your folks after stroke, my guess is, is that that's it's just a very common condition. Um, so I think there's probably just more uh, literature that was available um, to discuss all of these action statements for that population as opposed to TBI and um, incomplete spinal cord injury. So when you're looking and you've got a patient that's got goals of walking again and they fall into uh, the diagnosis again of stroke, incomplete spinal cord injury, or TBI, pull this resource out so that you know what you should and shouldn't be doing. 
Um, for example, let's see, uh, one of the action statements that they put together was don't use body weight support treadmill training. Um, and in, in, for individuals with stroke, they said that that's high quality evidence not to use that. It was not effective for them. And then limited evidence for incomplete spinal cord injury and TBI. Um, there was, uh, you know, uh, let's see, use of virtual reality when walking when possible high quality evidence for those um, with spinal cord or excuse me with uh, um, with a stroke uh, don't use elliptical uh, or exoskeleton robots um, on treadmills or ellipticals high quality evidence for folks after incomplete spinal cord injury so some of these after reading these uh, it was like oh man got to change the way I, I practice uh, because this isn't necessarily how you were, were taught in school, right? Uh, depending on when you graduated, um, some of these things we used to do a lot of. Um, and now we've actually found that it's it's not quite as effective. So um, goal here was to take what is a, I don't remember exactly how many pages that um, clinical practice guideline is, but it's it's at least probably 60 um, and boil it all down into into one nice chart for you so that you can say, uh, let me check these things off or or not as I'm developing my plan of care for these individuals. So uh, hopefully it's a, a helpful one to go on your bulletin board in front of your computer or something. <laughs> Yeah, and I imagine this resource is one where we all might want to embody the spirit of Maya Angelou and know that we are all doing the best we can until we know better. And then when we know better, we can do better and we can shift and change based on the information that we have available to us at the time. So there's no shame if anyone's done any of these things. Oh, yeah. Um, but forward, you have information you can do better. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've definitely done, done some of these things and, and right. Some of them say no evidence. So, you know, maybe, maybe in five years down the road, you'll be able to pull out your, your green highlighter and, uh, and scribble in, in one of these to, to make it a high quality evidence piece. That's, that's the goal, right. As we find out more, um, yeah, we can do better. Did, did they have anything about, uh, so they said, don't use body weight support treadmill training. Did they have anything about like those gate trainers, like the Grillo or the Rifton Drifter or whatever, and some of those things where um, it's kind of like an external supportive device that they're powering as they walk? For is it, uh, is it, is it, um, tell me more about what it is it's exactly. It's kind of like a standing frame that they can, they have a seat that kind of gives them some support. I have a gentleman right now who has a, um, he's, he, he's only in his twenties, but he had a pretty severe stroke and, uh, um, that's really the only way he can walk is he's got this kind of, uh, device that he sits in and, uh, it takes, probably does take away a little bit of his body weight and then allows him to take some steps and, and it kind of rolls as you walk. It's almost like a really fancy walker, I guess, that you're kind of strapped in and, and hold on to. Um, yeah. I was just curious if they talked about anything like that. So I, not that I know of, but this, but I think this is an important point, Ross. So, so if it, if it's providing body weight support, right. So classically you think of that in a harness or underwater or something like that, where you're getting body weight support, um, they're saying not, uh, uh, not good evidence to improve someone's functional walking ability, um, in general. So where I think it comes back to you is, are there other benefits for that patient of them being vertical and being somewhat mobile um, where, yes, you're walking, but is that really our goal with this? Is, is your goal really to promote functional 
ambulation. I'm not sure. density. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. So this could be this could be skin health. This could be bone and joint uh, joint related. This could be digestive in nature. Right. Of, of getting uh, vertical in these positions could just be strength training, could be um, uh, for sensation. Right. And and proprioceptive input. Like, I mean, I think there's a lot of other other things. Maybe it's even just for socialization. Right. Um, yeah. So so I think depending on what your goals are. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't do any of this stuff again, but maybe you're going to want to be thinking, uh, you're going to want to be thoughtful about, okay, what are my objectives with this intervention? If your objectives are to improve um, uh, walking uh, functionally, you know, that this might not be as appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, great. We're going to wrap up with our case study. So every month we have a different case study. It's just a chance for us to talk about different resources that we might use from the library. Um, and then we also bring in different clinical perspectives. So the case study this month is a 65-year-old male with low back pain who works at Walmart in the grocery department and spends most of his work hours transferring loads, which has caused him to have low back pain and has limited ability his, and has limited his ability to work. He wants to get rid of his pain and return to his prior level of function. So this is one resource that we might share with this person. Um, it's about reducing the risk of future back pain, and it talks about what works and what doesn't work. So that might be a place to start for this person. And then Ross, do you want to share any thoughts about this case study and talk about the resource that you picked out that you might share with them? Yeah. Um, so this gentleman, even though it sounds like transferring loads is the primary cause of pain, it's not unusual for people to also have uh, um, pain with standing for prolonged periods of times. And I figure with this guy working in the grocery department, he's probably on his feet all day. And so this is a um, standing habituation protocol that uh, is based on something uh, from a trial that uh, showed some success for improving how long people could stand uh, without pain. The one caveat to this though, is you really would need management. Uh, so I don't know how flexible Walmart would be with this, but you would need management on board to let you take seated breaks during the day for this to work. Um, but the idea is you find out how long you can stand uh, before you start to have pain with a stopwatch. And then you start at about 80% of that time and you let yourself stand for that period of time um, and then you take a break and how long you break or how long you stand depends on um, what stage you're in. So the first stage you spend 25% of the time standing during week one, you're, uh, you know, say 30 minutes, week two, you add 10 minutes, you'd be 40 minutes, but you're still only standing 25% of the time, meaning that your rest break would have to, to lengthen as well. And then you follow that protocol for four weeks. And then at stage two, you go to 33% of the time standing, kind of follow that same protocol where you're adding, but this time it bumps up a little bit. You add 15 minutes per week, how long you stand. Um, and then you're uh, maintaining that 33% standing time rule. And then stage three uh, bumps it up to 50%. And then you could, it, this protocol just goes to 50%, but you could easily continue to progress this and maybe that'd be something where the person with back pain uh, or this gentleman would want to work with his therapist. But um, 
it, they did have some good success getting people able to stand for longer without pain. And so if that's a component of this guy's problem, this can be a useful uh, tool that they can take home with them and they can kind of follow it, at least for those first three stages to uh, improve how long they can be up and around before the back pain bothers them. Of course, this isn't uh, addressing as much of the lifting type stuff. And so you'd have to work on that as well. But if this is a piece of the puzzle, um, it's kind of a nice, nice way that you can just send it home with them, maybe talk about it in clinic and talk about the progression and then, uh, let them kind of try to follow that protocol. Sorry, I'm having to <laughs> try to unmute myself as there's drilling and things going on in the background. Okay. And then Troy, I think I accidentally muted you, but yeah, this is a great reference to share with this guy. And then Troy, what, what are your thoughts about this case study and what resource would you use from the library? Yeah, great. So I, I picked one actually similar to Ross in, in the sense that it's a, a nice prescriptive um, piece for somebody that's having low back pain. Uh, the piece that I, I picked is it's just called a, a Instructions for Acute Low Back Pain. Specifically, this is uh, for someone that um, it would benefit from repeated extensions from what's really kind of a McKinsey method. So if you're a PT that's uh, familiar with that, um, this is is a handout that really goes through this. So it's uh, it's progressive over um, over the course of uh, it's probably several weeks. Um, but there's six exercises and then progressions of how uh, how long and um, when to kind of move on to the next one. So it's really about uh, promoting increased extension um, and uh, yeah. So uh, starting with prone lying, progressing to kind of a prone on elbows. Uh, to a cobra pose to forward or to back bends and then um, ending with a knees to chest so an overpressed flexion piece but um, this guideline is really meant to be pretty simple and to give someone um, that you know will already uh, be kind of appropriate and well suited for for someone that uh, needs repeated extension exercises you guys ever counsel people to switch jobs you know, I, I I try not to. Uh, I guess I try not to influence them too much, one way or another. Um, but if they're kind of indicating that that's the road they want to head down, and if it seems like their job is bad for their backs, I don't discourage that either. I guess that's, maybe that would be my way that uh, you know, if someone's having a lot of pain uh, with lifting and they have other opportunities, you could say, oh well, maybe that would be good, you know. Or but uh, I try not to. Uh, um, you know, I guess I, I don't try to get too involved in their personal decisions either. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I'm similar with Ross. I do really talk about what I think are contributing factors and I try to um, get people to kind of weigh, um, cost benefit, like, so weigh the value, um, of something. So, um, right. I think that this is probably making your symptoms worse, whatever this is, maybe it's a sport, maybe it's a, a job, maybe it's, you know, whatever. Um, now, do, is that more important than you uh, having decreased pain or having increased mobility or whatever it may be? Um, so I'll try to lay it out there for them because, and, and, and I try to give the permission that 
it can change, right? Like maybe today it is more valuable that you continue to, to work at this job or do continue to do this activity at some point down the road. Maybe it's not. And that's okay to, uh, um, to kind of go back and forth. I, I, I'm not there to say one thing is, uh, more important than the other by any means. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Any other thoughts about the case study? We're going to move on to resources you might be interested in from the OT team this month. They created a three-page handout all about adaptive sports. It covers adaptive skiing, sled hockey, kayaking, cycling, golf, and wheelchair rugby. So a great resource to share with patients who were into sports before their injury and want to get back into it and maybe a place to start that conversation. And we're going to wrap up our show. So thank you, Ross and Troy, for being here. Thank you for writing excellent content that's added to our library. Um, for those of you who are Access Pass members, you have instant access to everything we've talked about today. If you're not a member yet, you can find these resources at our website, therapyinsights.com. And new this month, we're offering all of our resources available for one off purchase. You can purchase them individually on Etsy. So you can find us there. Um, all links are available in the show notes, so you can quickly link to any resource either on our website or on Etsy. And if you have any questions for us, you can reach us anytime at support at therapyinsights.com. And if you're a member, be sure to vote for what we create next, because we do listen to all of your feedback. Um, and we definitely take requests and we'll have a new episode of the show coming on August 1st. So we will see you then. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.